We have an exciting partnership to announce before we get into today's Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt has been asked to join Reads Across America Radio, a 24-7 internet radio station where you can listen to veteran stories 24-7. Uh, you can find that on the iHeartRadio app. You can also find it on their website, readsacrossamerica.org. The Scuttlebutt will be featured Friday nights at 9 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. If you don't know anything about Reads Across America, they're an incredible organization, all dedicated to honoring veterans uh, and, and those who uh, gave all in service to our country. Check out the Scuttlebutt on their radio station and all the other programs that they have on their 24-7 radio station, again, on iHeartRadio app or readsacrossamerica.org. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Today's guest is Adam Jones. He is the author of Weapons of Mass Deception. He is a former U.S. Army captain and UH-60 Blackhawk helicopter pilot. Uh, we're going to dive really into his story because it's an incredible story of perseverance and overcoming adversity and how you deal with disappointment. Um, even he says during the recording that he's never really dove this heavy into his history, but we really enjoyed it. Uh, it's an incredible story, like I said. Uh, he is right now a transformational speaker uh, and a leadership consultant. He is the founder of Kingdom Operatives, which we will get into later into the podcast. Uh, and we talk extensively about his book. Um, this is, I'd say you would say like a self-help book. Uh, if you're in transition out of the military, even if you're a civilian, I think this book would help you. During his transition, he came up against a lot of adversity, um, realized that he wasn't living in, in the present. Um, so he was able to turn that around found a new vocabulary for himself, and he put this all into this book with an accompanying workbook, and you can find all the links down in the description below. Um, I hope that you're inspired by Adam's story. He's a great speaker. He's a really great guy. Please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. You can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org, um, and I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. I know I did. Uh, thank you, and enjoy the show. Joining me for today's Scuttlebutt is Adam Jones. Adam, you are the author of Weapons of Mass Deception. Uh, really excited to dive into this book uh, with you, uh, but I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Sean, for having me. Um, really excited to be with you guys today. And yeah, my background, you know, I joined the Army in uh, 2009. I was a college ROTC, but I also chose to do a little enlistment here in the National Guard. Um, got out about three years ago, and, you know, I really had to discover, you know, who's just Adam, right? Not Captain Jones and, and that piece, which I know a lot of people go through. Um, I'm a father of two girls, two toddlers. As I told you, Sean, they're, they're starting to run the house already. Uh, married for just about 10 years now. We're, we're coming up on our 10th year anniversary. And now um, I started a company called Kingdom Operatives. And our company, we train high stakes leaders, how to build transformational cultures mm -hmm. and more mission effective teams. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably a good, good starting point. I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, not from here. I moved here after the pandemic, which is part of, I think what actually inspired a lot of the book because, uh, being so isolated, uh, I almost magnified some issues that were going on in my life. That's great. And as a fellow Pittsburgher, uh, welcome to the city uh, for our longtime Scuttlebutt listeners. You know that that BBC here uh, is in Pittsburgh. Uh, so excited to have you here uh, with us. Um, hopefully you've become somewhat of a Steeler fan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's yep. good. <laughs> then you've been indoctrinated. So we're good. Um, yeah, we're good to go. I wear yeah. Steelers. Yeah, we were traveling to Colorado this week and I had Steelers stuff on. So 
I'm there, man. You know, there's always I, a bar, no matter where you go, <laughs> there's always a Steeler bar. So you always have a home. It's like cheers. Yes. Um, yes. So I, I want to dive back a bit because you said, you know, you did some ROTC, but army, army 09, army 09, that, that was during uh, surge years. Am I, am I correct? Yeah. So 2009, um, I believe that was going on, you know, I was in college, so I was on a non-deployable status, but yeah. So why did you choose army? Oh, uh, a lot of reasons, you know, since I was a kid, I always knew I was going to fight as hard as I could to be a Black Hawk helicopter pilot. Um, I saw the movie Black Hawk Down and was like, I want to do that. And my mom goes, you want to be the one crashing in an aircraft? And I was like, well, it doesn't mean I'm a crash, you know, like I, I want to fly those. And I knew that at a very young age. I mean, you know, elementary school, right? Even earlier than that, I knew I was going to join the military because I was always drawn to it. You know, I always just loved uh, what it represented. You know, I love seeing people who are willing to sacrifice their own good, their own safety for other people. Mm-hmm. And Army, because Army had the most helicopters. Army Army was my greatest <laughs> chance to actually be a helicopter pilot, right? So, yeah. yeah. So you're not from a military family? Yeah, I definitely am. So my oh, okay. dad served in my dad served in Vietnam. Um, you know, for a couple of years he was in. He was a specialist. You know, just traditional uh, Vietnam story, right? I mean, he went through a lot, saw a lot, uh, but he was kind of more uh, communication. So he would just take different messages to people. Uh, my uncle was Vietnam, and he was a Marine. And saw almost all his friends, you know, uh, lose their lives, unfortunately. Uh, what was it? Was he I-Corps? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, he, he saw a lot. Um, but then basically, I didn't know this kind of stuff, right? I just knew I had a family life. I had a family that was in the military. I just knew that. Like, I could see pictures of them. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever as a kid. You know, man, if I gave you the full breakdown, uh, my dad my uncle Alan, my uncle Mark, my aunt Kelly, uh, my uncle Kurt. I mean, there, and I'm, I'm doing the best I can at remembering that many people I knew were in the military, but I didn't know them during that time. I just felt like that was the norm, right? Like to go serve. Yeah. What'd your dad, uh, what advice did he give you when you enlisted? Oh, good point. Um, you know, my dad's definitely a man of few words. So, um, he was just totally shocked that I got a scholarship. I remember when I interviewed at Penn State ROTC because I was also trying to go to West Point mm-hmm. and I was all about West Point. That was that was my only option. Penn State was my backup plan. And then I visited West Point multiple times. No offense to any West Pointers, but man, you know, people were pretty bummed out. Right. And yeah. um, they made that very clear to me. Right. People are like, dude, why do you want to go here? This place sucks, you know. <laughs> and then I'm like, I just do. Right. And I bought all the cool West Point stuff. You know, this is while I'm in high school. And then I visited Penn State as my backup. And everyone was like, Penn State's amazing. This is the best school ever. Like, you're going to love ROTC here. And it was the total, <laughs> total difference. And I was like, all right, so one, uh, you know, is really excited to be there. The other people are reluctant, but, you know, it'll pay off in the long run. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I just really felt Happy Valley was my place, you know, especially being called Happy Valley. I was like, this mm-hmm. is awesome. So I chose Penn State. And I remember when we interviewed there, uh, for a scholarship, my dad was, uh, he, he came up to the the PMS, you know, the professor of military science. And he was like, Hey, thanks for giving him a shot. You know, and almost like, you know, I, I know he's not, he's not going to get it because that was so <laughs> mind blowing to him that I yes. could get a scholarship and go to college when he was a truck driver. Uh, and I don't have like a college educated family, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't come from that. 
And he was just kind of like, Hey, thanks for, you know, giving my son a shot. And they said, what do you mean? Like, we're giving him a full scholarship and it's coming wow. right away. Yeah. And that like kind of blew all of our minds. Right. But I yeah. knew that was coming because I've, I've always been the guy and I, I I've learned not to apologize for this because it's a way I can help other people. I've always been driven. I've always been that person who will go, you know, a step further than most, especially if I know what I want. And I knew I wanted to be a helicopter pilot in the army. So, um, there we go. You know, that, that was kind of what dad, dad didn't have too much to say, but you know, we, we made it happen. And then my uncle was like, Adam, you don't have to join the army. It's okay. You know, you don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I definitely had different uh, perspectives from different people. Yeah. And you have to be a driven person to be able to be a Blackhawk helicopter pilot. Um, that that's an intense study. It's intense training. And it's a very difficult, uh, I want to say aircraft, but I know that's wrong. What would you call it? Uh, oh, I call it an aircraft. Yeah. Aircraft. You, okay. You got the language. Uh -huh. Okay. Awesome. Uh, you know, not being a veteran, there are times where the lingo just doesn't, doesn't like it's called this in the, in the army and that in the Marines and you know, who knows what the air force is doing, but okay. Totally so yeah, to, to, it's a very difficult aircraft to fly. Yeah, um, so, it is. so talk, talk me through a bit of that training. I, I, I love hearing sort of this background because a lot of this I think is going to lead into what your book is about and what we learn about you in the book. So uh, it's good for our audience to sort of get this, get this history. Yeah. So um, knowing that I wanted to fly my whole life, I found ways to do that at a young age. Uh, so I joined what was called the civil air patrol. I highly recommend it to anyone who has like that military draw that mindset towards the military. They want to test it out and their kid. Right. So mm -hmm. I was 12 years old and I was in an air force uniform. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the civil air patrol. Are you? I've heard a bit of it because we've had some JRTC uh, members on the scuttlebutt um, that yeah. are flying already and they're, you know, underage. I don't even know if they have a, a driver's license yet. Yeah. Get ready for this, Sean. Okay. Yeah. So um, I was at church and then I saw someone come in with a military uniform on that was like a kid. And I was like, dude, what, how are you? Would you enlist? You know, like you're like 16 or 15 yeah. or something. And he's like, no, it's called the civil air patrol. And he was super intense. And basically I was like, oh, that's cool. What, what, what is that? And he's like, it's an auxiliary of the air force. And it really was, it was stood up in a uh, you know, world war II era, um, basically as a way of observing submarines um, for the military. Right. So they went right into this kind of volunteer, you know, capacity of just how can we help? Mm -hmm. And it really evolved over time, right? There's a lot of structure to it, especially in Pennsylvania. If you ask me, Pennsylvania has one of the best, I believe it's called a wing. It's been a long time, but one of the best wings. Wing. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. I think it's the 31st wing, if I remember, but mm -hmm. long story short, I see him in uniform. Thought that was super cool. Cause I wanted to do that one day. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I attend, I forget what we called it. It's kind of like going to drill almost, you know, like the guard reserve type of thing, but once a month and sometimes every other week you go to like a military training uh monday night right so when other people are done with school you're going off to you know something for the next four hours or so where you're going to do drilling ceremonies you're going to learn about space you're going to do all these different things involving air force and i was just immediately drawn to it so i signed up you ready for this at 12 years old uh, joined the Civil Air Patrol oh. and started learning how to do search and rescue missions as a kid. You know, you, they'd get you up on a mountain in, in the Appalachian Trail and you'd start learning how do you uh, coordinate a team of people to go find a crash plane. And then you would go do it for real at like 15 years old. You'd go, you'd get a call. You're in school. Your mom would get a call, right? Yeah. Hey, there's a crash plane on this this area. We're looking for the pilot. We can't find them. 
uh, we're getting a team together to go search. You know, Hurricane Katrina was another thing. Now, I didn't go help with that one because my mom's like, you're not leaving school for a week right now. You know, like mm -hmm. you need to stay in school. So that was her choice. I mean, I was only seven years old after all. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, it's so cool, man. You're doing all this stuff as like a kid. Yeah. And at 13 years old, I started flying planes. At 16 years old, I got my solo pilot's license all through the Civil Air Patrol. Wow. Right. So I flew all by myself at 16. Before I even had a driver's license, I only had a permit. I could mm -hmm. fly a plane and land it. Pretty yeah. wild. Yeah, absolutely. Your friends were probably like, hey, can I can I get a ride to prom? Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> you felt pretty cool. You know, yeah. like, you're like, this is this is awesome. Right. Um, and then, you know, I ended up getting into lacrosse, too. Like I was always an athlete, you know, somewhat. Right. Like there were certain sports that I liked, like for me, lacrosse. So I balanced lacrosse and Civil Air Patrol. And um, yeah, in the summer, you're going away to like almost like a boot camp. Right. Like two weeks, stuff like that. Sometimes you're leading them and then I took it super serious, Sean. So uh, I don't know why I just, I fell in love with it. And I went through the ranks to what's called the um, Earhart Award. So the Billy Mitchell is something you actually check on a, on a uh, college application. Do you have yeah. the Eagle, Eagle Scout or the Billy Mitchell? And you check it off. Yeah. And I had the Billy Mitchell, but I went further than that and got what's called the Earhart. I have not thought about this to this extent in a long time, by the way, but mm -hmm. basically um, it's going to give you some, uh, priority, you know, when you're applying to different schools, like some extra points. Yeah. And yeah, you're sleeping in the woods and doing all that fun stuff. And then you go off to college and now you're in the real military mm -hmm. and it's all over and you might never fly again. Right. Like the truth yeah. is I might be done flying because I might not get aviation in the army, but I'm just constantly trying to put myself in the best position to where I'm, I'm an obvious choice, you know? Yeah. And it didn't go as planned, just so you know, I'll tell you that much. Okay. Uh, why is that? Yeah. So, I, so um, 2008 started ROTC, 2009 enlisted in the Guard also because I kind of wanted my time in service to start then. Mm -hmm. And again, man, this is, I speak to schools about this stuff, like to the, to the you know, students, like when you truly know what you want mm -hmm. and, and you're so crystal clear on it, you'll begin to clear out all the distractions that can stop you from getting there. When people are like, you know, um, Adam, like you kind of made a lot of really good choices as a kid. How did you do that? It wasn't because I had parents who were all up on my grill, constantly trying to get me to do things. It was because I really knew I wanted to be a pilot. And I knew there was a whole lot of things that could disqualify me from that. Right. Yeah. So I get to college and uh, join the guard, hopefully taking more, more um, control over my career, because when you're in the National Guard, you have the opportunity, like I love the, I'm a huge advocate for the guard, by the way, but um, you have the opportunity to kind of start to build your own career, not based on just what the army needs, but also what's available based on your own research. Mm -hmm. So you could be like, man, I enlisted and I'm military intelligence, but I know I want aviation and aviation slots are opening up and I got to be an officer soon. So I want an officer aviation slot. This is, mm -hmm. this is kind of my story. Yeah, yeah. And I did that. And then, you know, we get to just a couple of months before graduating college, you know, commissioning. And I found out um, that I got a job working at a company called Booz Allen Hamilton, right? I was a senior management consultant there right out of college, working with Pentagon, uh, undersecretary of defense. I mean, awesome, right? Yeah. I get to do that and be in the army and fly. Well, when that happened, 
They were like, you're going to live in D.C., but we're the Pennsylvania Army National Guard. You're not going to be able to come up to Pennsylvania all the time and keep your flight hours because it's not one week in a month for a guard pilot. It is once or twice a week on top of one week in a month, on top of all the other requirements. Yeah. It's the same active duty minimums. We have the exact same requirements as someone active duty, but you have a civilian job usually. Yeah. So they said, you know, we're not going to be able to make this work. And also we're not deploying like we planned. So we don't need the additional pilots. And just like that, I go from, I'm going to be a pilot in a couple months, go to flight school to, Hey, this isn't happening anymore. And I had to scramble and find my own unit. I had to find a new unit. Mm -hmm. So, uh, get ready for this one. So I went, uh, I'm looking all over knowing I'm going to live in the DC area. And I found military police was like really one of the only things available still. So uh, I said, okay, I'll be a military police officer for now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's what happened. I became an MP um, and went to MP yeah. office school and was in DC working as a management consultant full-time, but an MP, you know, um, part-time. Well, dang. Okay. So, so lead me through that. How long were you in DC? Did you, I mean, yeah. did you end up flying again? What? I have a really confusing story. I've never told it to this extent. So, oh, well, yeah. this is great. Then we're getting the we're getting the full Monty, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You're helping me remember it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, basically, I moved to DC, um, and I I'm not happy as an MP. You know, like this is not the life I wanted at all. I did everything I could to position myself for aviation, only to find out, hey, we're not deploying anymore. You're going to live in DC. It's not going to work right? You're going to, you're going to eventually transfer out of Pennsylvania guard to a different state because you're not gonna be able to keep this going. Right? Like that was the point. If we give you a flight slot, send you to flight school, and then you're a pilot here in the Pennsylvania guard, let me tell you what happens almost every time. That's what they were telling me mm -hmm. almost every single time without fail. That person now is a pilot and can move to any state they want and fly because they're in the guard. So you can switch states, right? Like yeah. I, that's why I'm such an advocate for it. It really allows you to design your life. If you take it serious, you can go far too. Right. Yeah. So for me, um, and I was around a lot of high speed guard people. I know some people have had bad experiences. I've had both. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I've been with people who are, you know, just top notch leaders who also chose the same thing. Like, Hey, I kind of want my civilian career as well, mm -hmm. but I know I want to be in the military. I just don't want like an all in approach to that yet, because I want to use you know, a little bit of all that I went to school for, you know, instead of just the commission. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, they basically tell me that you're, um, how did they say it? Like, we know you're going to leave the unit. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to waste a flight slot on someone who's going to live in DC and not be able to make it work. I know you think you can make it work. You can't, it's not going to happen. And I want to tell everyone they were a hundred percent correct. It would not have been possible. I mean, going from D.C. traffic up to the Pennsylvania, you know, Fort Indiantown Gap once a week yeah. on top of a civilian job, they were totally right. It's not happening because I know because when I was in the Colorado Army National Guard, I had a 30 minute commute and it was still hard to get there in time to get the, the, the uh, aircraft, you know, pre-flighted, crew mission brief, all that take off, land around midnight, you know, uh, 1130 midnight shut it down, go home, go to sleep and wake up for work the next day. Yeah. You're wow. young. So you think you can. Yeah. You that's get the, to our age and you're like, ah, that sounds awful. <laughs> yes, exactly. right. Yeah. So, 
Yes. Um, basically, I'm in the D.C. National Guard at this point as an MP, mm -hmm. uh, doing a great, you know, I, I did well, right? Like, I really focused on cultural reform. Um, we had a unit that just people did not want to be in. They weren't proud of. Mm -hmm. um, and I could see that. And I could see that there were some leaders in that organization that were toxic mm -hmm. and they had the rank, but they didn't have the influence. People didn't really want to follow them. And then I saw people who had the influence, but they didn't have the rank. And I started to work with my company commander. And I was like, this isn't, th this person actually is a horrible influence on this unit. I just want you to know soldiers hate him and they should, because this is what he does. So we, we you know, let, we don't need to kick him out of the military but we can move him away from people and move him into operations. So he's planning because he's an awesome planner, but he hates people as well. So let's get him away from that. Right. Then let's get this uh, E5, you know, like a, a brand new sergeant, give this person maybe more of an E6 level responsibility. And I started to look at how this middle pack was ready to go in the unit, right? right? They were ready to take charge, but they were being limited. Um, I think sometimes leaders, we can put a ceiling on people when really we should be a foundation for them to build upon, right? Right. And that's what I saw. And it, it fired me up, man. It just wasn't right. You know, it was people who were too used to the old way things were done mm -hmm. and uh, their position, their power. So we sh we shifted around, had tremendous success. Uh, retention started to come up, all these different things. And then I got put on a, a deployment roster for um, another company, adjacent company that was deploying that needed a second lieutenant. And they were like, we want him mm. uh, out of the whole battalion. And I didn't even know who the company was, but okay, I'll go. And then it got canceled, man. It got canceled like two months before, I would say. And it was, it was a huge bummer because you're kind of ready to go. You're all trained up mm -hmm. and then it doesn't happen. And when that got canceled, my company commander was like, all right, so that's not happening. What else do you want? And I said, I've always wanted aviation. Can I have a chance to talk to the, you know, aviation unit, right? Uh, yeah. The state aviation officer. And then he was like, yeah, I support that. You've done a great job here. I know that's what you wanted the whole time. Go ahead. Dude, so that's huge. I'm sorry to interject. That's huge because like, it's easy to get into a job that you hate and just like say, screw it. I'm just going to like float, you know, but if you hadn't like committed yourself and said, you know what, I'm going to make the best of this and I'm going to work with it. That may not, he may not have been like, you've been awesome. Let's try it. Dude, you know? Great point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, that's really important that people remember what you just said, right? Like, mm -hmm. I know this because I, I talk to veterans. I talk to military. That's what I do now. Right. And I know that in their heart, there's a, there's an inner turmoil. There's this struggle. Like, dude, you don't know what I can actually do. The civilian world is limiting me. Right. Maybe even your unit is not putting you in a position for what you know is capable, what you're capable of. Do your absolute best right now. Take on additional responsibility. I know, you know, there's, there's a huge culture uh, in the military of like, don't volunteer for extra things. Right. Like, mm -hmm. cause whenever you do, it's a bad thing. Yeah. Voluntold and yeah. Yeah. I need to volunteer me. Oh, you clean the latrines. You're like, no. Oh. Uh, yeah. So then no one puts their hands up. Right. But I do think, man, take on some more, start expanding your experience, even if your title didn't change. So yeah, that's kind of what happened. I I've been very blessed, Sean, with like leaders who um, we share a similar perspective about the world and they've just somehow been able to help me go to that next step. But I didn't make it, it wasn't about me. It was about, I know if I'm positioned here, I'll be able to help the most people. I know this is where I'll, I'll the best version of Adam will come out. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways, he said it was cool. So I went and talked to the state aviation officer and uh, he said, he's, I, I had like a sentence in, 
And he looked at me and he was like, no. He said, if you want it to be a, 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 if you want it to be a pilot, why aren't you a pilot? Why are you an MP? And then walked away from me. And, you know, this is a lieutenant colonel. So I was pretty fired up. He might've been a full bird. And I caught up to him because he was walking across the drill floor, right? Walking across the gym. And, and by the way, even though I was in the guard, I was in the guard for 10 years. So my whole career is army national guard, yeah. but like seven years was active. Like I had really cool active assignments. So I was pretty much, you know, military, even though I was in the guard, it was, I was pretty much full time. Yeah. yeah. And I follow him across the drill floor. Cause I was, I was doing a training and I said, sir, just give me a second. And he said, all right, look, I'm going to walk across this drill floor. When I'm at the other end, you're gone. And he said, you got basically 30 seconds to convince me why I should give you a shot at interviewing for aviation when you're already a lieutenant and you're already a military police officer. And he starts walking across and, um, you know, I just poured it all out there. You know, I told this person, man, let, let me, let me start with this at 12 years old. I started, you know, focusing on flying at 13 years old. I flew 16 years old. I soloed. I only joined the army because the army has the most helicopters. And I knew I wanted to be a Black Hawk pilot my entire life. I didn't want to be an MP. I was in the Pennsylvania National Guard. They didn't give me the, the, the slot anymore. And that's why I became an MP. And I've given my best I could while I'm here. But that's where I want to be. Yeah. And he was just like, all right, send your packet in. You got four days. Our interviews in like, it's like a week and a half. So basically, I had like four days to turn around a flight packet again, which I've done once already. But now I have to get an updated physical. At least oh, I got geez. my eyes fixed already. Yeah, yeah, I got LASIK before that, you right. know. So it was just an uphill battle. But I was like, all right, uh, sir, he said yes. He said he'll give me a chance at interviewing. By the way, that's all that is, is a chance to be on the flight board, right? right? To, to yeah. show people what you can actually bring the table. And uh, yeah, made it work and then was able to interview. And then... Um, well, Sean, I got last place out of the four four uh, people they accepted for an interview. I was ranked last. Um, and then there were other people who like were not accepted at all, right? But like mm -hmm. out of the four slots they had, I got fourth. And I remember thinking, uh, cool, like I'm going, right? Like this is going to yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah. And I want to point out why I got fourth because some people think they're they're you know a little bit too far gone at this point. I got fourth because I was the most senior. And the other people were ready to come out and go right out of college into flight school. And they yeah. were like, dude, this guy's an MP already. You know, we'll give him like last place in the lineup because, um, you know, he's he's already at this unit. These people are a priority. We're going to take care of them first, but we will send him to flight school. Yeah. And then I got the phone call, the phone call that you want after you finally met, you know, the love of your life. Right. My, yeah. my wife and I started dating at this time mm -hmm. and I get a call right after getting married, a month after getting married. He's like, it's it's him, it's the, the colonel. And he said, uh, you know, Lieutenant Jones, uh, are you, you said you would take a shortfall, right? I said, yep. And a shortfall means I'm not getting pretty much any notice and I'm going. Yeah. And I said, absolutely, sir. Yeah, I would take a shortfall. And yeah. I was given, I'm, I'm kind of speeding along because this can be such a long story, but I was given- are, Were you flying then? Were you flying Blackhawks at this point? No, no, but I was okay. accepted into the unit. Gotcha. Uh, you know, had the interview accepted, all that stuff. And then now I'm waiting to go to flight school. Gotcha. And I need a shortfall to go to flight school. I'm really glad you clarified that. I understand. Okay. If not, it was going to be about two and a half years. So I got my flight school slot based on their current listing. I'm like, man, I'm going to be a pretty senior lieutenant at that point. You right. Know? And could, could you age out? Is it possible for them to be like, well, I, I wouldn't have, now. but yeah, I mean, if they keep, keep it going, right. Like I felt yeah, like yeah. it was all just a test and 
um, I started to learn that a no is not a no forever. It can be temporary for a moment in time. I needed that no, by the way, because I needed to meet my wife, right? Yeah. Everything lined up to me meeting my wife who I met back at Penn State. Hmm. So like, I'm good. Like it all made sense. After you go further down the line, you start to see, oh, wow. Like my steps were being ordered, right? Yep. You know, I'm a man of faith and it's like my steps were being ordered by the Lord. Like things were yep. coming together that I couldn't see. And I, if I would have forced it, which I could do, I would have messed this all up. Yep. So anyways, I get that phone call and he says, uh, all right, if you can take a shortfall, we just had someone, you know, in flight school, uh, we got a phone call that, that, uh, is not able to report. They got hurt. And, um, it was a Thursday and he said, you start on Monday. And I was like, oh, wow, I have to leave tomorrow. So I came home to my new wife of one month. Yeah. Like, hey. <laughs> oh. Did you bring flowers? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have time for flowers. <laughs> I was like, uh, so you know, we want to go to Alabama and go to flight school. And I literally, I think I said it just like that. She's like, yeah, yeah, totally. I said, you know, we were told that was going to be like two years from now. Yeah. Well, uh, we leave tomorrow. We're going to have to leave tomorrow in order to make oh, this man. thing work. Yeah. And she's like, wait, what? And she almost this excitement of just like, okay, let's go do it. Mm -hmm. So the next day, man, we, we told our, you know, I was full-time army at that point. So I told that was easy. The army goes, Oh, you're getting a new assignment. And then my wife has to say, my husband got a new assignment mm -hmm. and we moved, we moved out to Alabama that next day. Um, so Friday, final day, Saturday, got on the road, left all our stuff in Alabama, um, for like four months or so until they could figure out how to get our, you know, our, um, furniture and everything. And then, yeah. you know, showed up to flight school a day before it started. And it was like game time. Oh man. Okay. So we'll flash forward a bit here. Um, I'm loving this story, but uh, I think the thing that we've been barreling towards is you sitting in that cockpit for the first time and what that, because I mean, this is what everything is. Your whole life has been leading to that moment mm. sitting in that cockpit. Good and there was obviously a lot of training that went in, went in before you could even get behind the, the you know, the, the stick, but like, what was that like? Yeah. Yeah. You go to seer school. So survival school, which is terrible um we yeah. say it's the best training you never want to have again right uh you go through all these different planning you know schools and stuff like that and then eventually you get to the first cockpit which is the th-67 for us mm -hmm. now it's a lakota um army lakota but little small aircraft and even that was like oh my gosh like dude i got my flight helmet you know you get your army helmet fitted yep. to you and all that kind of stuff and it starts to become pretty real pretty fast and then you realize that like I might know how to fly a plane, but it doesn't mean I know how to fly a helicopter. Like Very a helicopter. different. Terrible. Oh my God. I was like, I'm going to crash this thing like multiple, multiple times. Multiple yeah, we've, times. I've heard a veteran say, and I'm probably good. I've heard a veteran say, and I'm, I'm probably going to destroy what he actually said, but his quote was something like, you know, the, the, the aircraft, the, a plane wants to fly. A helicopter wants to kill you. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> it's a whole different type of person. Yeah. There's this really cool, uh, you can look up like helicopter pilot versus uh, fixed wing pilot and there's like this really cool cartoon this guy looks super stressed out in the helicopter mm -hmm. but it's a hundred percent true uh you start to look at life differently like something's gonna break something's gonna fall apart what am i gonna do when it happens and i get like you know i flew both sides right um mm -hmm. so a fixed wing i could glide i now i need a i need a place to land that's a pretty big deal but the helicopter it's it's like defying the laws right like i remember i think they call it the theory of flight 
because they can't even fully prove how it all comes together in a helicopter. Mm. It's just, there's so, there's so many things happening. The biggest thing is the equal opposite reaction, right? Mm -hmm. If the helicopter, um, because the rotor's on the top. So as the rotor blades are spinning, the fuselage of the aircraft actually wants to spin the opposite way mm -hmm. because it's every action has an equal opposite reaction. Right. So then you have your tail rotor to balance that out, but it's not perfect. So when you start to learn how to fly, Sean, it's like, let me pick this thing up and let, oh, we're going to start going upside down a little bit and to the left and to the right. And you watch us all trying to hover and it's like, Oh my gosh, it was, it was really uh, challenging. That just makes my stomach turn on this, like thinking about it. I want to fly in F-18. Yeah. This is all you want to do right. is this. But like as you do list. that, everything starts to to move on, on you, right? right. Um, and the instructor pilots know what they're doing. So they're, they're keeping you safe. But mm -hmm. dude, also they're screaming at you. Like, it's like boot camp in the sky. Like I'm getting cursed out, you know, yelled at, told I suck, told you have no idea what you're doing. Is it better like, or worse than don't your wife's you side seat yet? driving? What'd you say? Is it better or worse than your wife's side seat driving? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, no, dude. Army was way worse. Yeah. Way worse. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's crazy, though. Like, you just totally start doubting yourself. We all mm -hmm. did. You have these really type A, you know, men and women who are out there who are like, this is what I want to do with my life. And then they, they're, we all come back after we're done flying for the day. You know, and you see everyone like they just got, you know, beat up, right? Like everyone's yeah. face looks, and, and sometimes you'd have someone who's like totally on a high, like they just had the best flight of their life. Like they're like, dude, I'm God's gift to aviation. Yeah. And then uh, most of us are like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I have no clue mm -hmm. how to do this. And this inner battle starts to happen almost where you're like, I know, I know I can do this. I know eventually we'll get there, but like, it's not coming together. Yeah. And yeah, you come home, you sit on the kitchen floor in tears almost, and your wife's like speaking into you, being like, hey, you got this, you can do this. You're like, dude, I'm telling you, I think I'm like one of the worst pilots that are, that are, that are here, right? Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to get this thing together, mm -hmm. um, especially like the hover, because it's just, you have to keep feeling it out. You just have to keep doing it over and over. And then they say you find the hover button, which is like, I locked it in. It's like you hit a button and you come up to a hover. It feels like that. Yeah. Oh, man. So you get behind the Blackhawk. Oh, okay, great. So that's the yeah. TH-67. Then you, it's a long journey, man. So, so you go. This is an incredible story. I, 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 I love this. And I'm hoping, again, we're going to get to the book, Weapons of Mass Deception, our audience. They're, 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 I'm sure they're hanging on every word. So. Oh, okay. Well, so uh, you have the TH-67. Before that, you have survival school. Then you go to the TH-67 instruments. So you learn how to fly only with your instrument panel. And uh, you go in the simulators and you do it for real. And you have what's called a hood on. And like you see how my hat is, right? So a hood is like this. They just call it the hood. It's really like this big blinder around you. So all you see is down and you see your instruments. And you're flying a real aircraft like that. Um, and you, you're evaluated on everything. Every day is an evaluation. It puts you in a really high uh, stress. Uh, it's not even like situation. The whole thing's just high stress, right? You, you barely take, like you have Monday through Friday, but Saturday and Sunday, you pretty much study. So most of us, what we would do is Saturday, let's go hang out with the family. Sunday, get to the library, start practicing all of your stuff, you know, as a team before the next week starts up again. So um, after all that, then you get what's called your go-to-war aircraft. And that's your selection. Your go-to-war aircraft is who gets what aircraft. 
what's cool is because I was in the guard, I knew I was sent for aviation and I knew I was sent, sorry, not aviation. I knew I was sent for, um, uh, a Black Hawk, right? I knew that was my aircraft. Other people don't know. So if you're only going like straight active duty and you don't have a unit, you know, that you're going back to yet, mm -hmm. this determines your future unit as well. So you could be top of the class and say, I want the Apache, right? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, there's only three Apaches left, but the guard people know what they're getting. Like we know that I'm that last Apache because I came here to fly Apaches for my unit that is an Apache unit. Yeah. So anyway, so you finally get your your helicopter. My family was there for that celebration. And then you start flying it. And yeah, you get in and um, you go through a whole bunch of uh, uh, kind of like uh, mechanical training of how everything works. Mm -hmm. And then once you get in there, you're like, this thing is so much bigger than it looked, mm -hmm. right? And I want to really go far ahead now because I want to give someone the greatest lesson I could give you, probably one of the greatest lessons I can give in life, but also something that took me years to learn after flight school, which is I'm in the helicopter and it just seems so big. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. 15 passenger, right? Well, 15 total, but you got the two pilots and you're like, man, I don't know where my tail is at. Like I might hit this. So you're trusting your crew chief and all these different things. And it's just so big so big and bulky and it's not listening to you okay mm, yeah. like it, it feels like dude i'm telling you to hover why are you not coming up to a hover you know i'm mm -hmm. telling you to turn this direction you're not turning right and for me i'm a you know i i found out in flight school that i'm kind of takes me a while to get it right i'm kind of mechanical it doesn't just flow with me yeah uh, i had to keep okay so i pull this and then i push this and then i put that to 15 degrees and then i hold it for three seconds then i you know like some people are like Right. Like it's yeah. just, they got it. I didn't, uh, I never did. Honestly. Um, it just, I, that's, I think the way I, I thought through aviation, you know, my whole time. Right. But when I get to my unit, so now I'm like seriously fast forwarding like three years. Um, I sit with the senior, uh, instructor pilot for the whole battalion. He's an amazing pilot. And we're about to go for our flight together. He looks over at me and he's like, all right, sir. He's like, go ahead, start it up. Right. So I start, 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 so I start starting up the aircraft. That's a very hard combination. Of yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he looks at me and I'm kind of flying through the checklist. I'm reading each thing. I'm starting it up. And he says, stop. And I look at him. His name's, uh, you know, I want to honor him because he, he really has helped me. Uh, he's a CW5, right? So highest ranking warrant officer, uh, Steve That's McElhaney. Huge. Yeah, Steve, Steve McElhaney. And McElhaney looks at me and he's like, hey, stop. I said, stop what? He's like, just stop. Hang on. Go back, go back. So I go back and I say the previous step as I'm starting up an aircraft. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, all the way back to the beginning. And I said, to the beginning of the checklist, you want me to go back to like putting my seatbelt on, right? And that's, that's what he wanted. He wanted shoulder harnesses and seatbelts check, which is step number one, right? And I'm like, that's kind of an insult. I'm like, why is he telling me like, I've already, I've been flying for years. I started flying at 12 or 13. So like, what's the deal here? Mm -hmm. And he taught me a really valuable lesson. He said, uh, look, hang on before you start up again, close your eyes. So I closed my eyes and he's flown with me before. So I think he had some like things he knew about me at this point, some ways he saw me. And he said, um, hang on, before you get in the aircraft and do all this again, I just want you to close your eyes take a breath. Okay. Chill out, sir. Cause I was trying to stay on a timeline. And he said, just sit in the aircraft, close your eyes, take a breath. And now I want you to grab your seat, your, your shoulder harness. 
And instead of actually buckling into this aircraft, I want you to visualize yourself strapping the aircraft to your body. Hmm. I want you to strap this aircraft to you. You're not getting in a Blackhawk. You are strapping a Blackhawk to your body. And it really opened up my life, right? Because I realized I needed to take command of this thing. It didn't matter how big it was, how intimidating it was. Sometimes I think, uh, what's his name? The actor who wrote Green Lights, um, uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey. He says, we can be so impressed with things, right? Stop being so impressed and get involved. I was so impressed that I was a helicopter pilot. I could never like let it go. It was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe every day this is happening. And it was like, dude, you're in charge now. Strap the aircraft to your body and tell it where to go. And that's what he taught me. And and what that really taught me was the the principle of alignment. How important it is to be properly aligned first before you try to activate everything, before you try to accelerate through life properly aligned. Before I fly that aircraft, I have to visualize myself saying, dude, you're coming with me. Here's what, here's where I need to go now. Follow me. Right. And I, it changed the way I flew forever, but it also wow. changed the way I lived. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay. So we're going to jump uh, ahead now. Cause you do want to get to the book, uh, 2020, you transition out. I'm, I'm, I'm figuring that the transition did it. How, how well did it go? Yeah. Terrible. I was really excited about it. You know, I was like, Oh, I did it, man. Became a pilot, did the army thing was, I was captain. Now I want a beard. I want to be a more present father and husband. Um, I want to be fully civilian. I don't want to worry about what's coming up next. I, I'm done, right? Yeah. And some people, I a lot got me to that point because the truth is I could have flew for the rest of my life and loved it. Mm-hmm. I knew I was not showing up powerfully anymore in my home. Like I could see myself falling apart, you know, and so could my wife. And it was like, then I got to get out. Right. But what I didn't realize is even though I got out of the military, the military did not get out of me. There were many mindsets that were developed. And I've heard this on your podcast from other people. Um, I think it was someone who runs the LTI, the Leadership Transition Institute. I truly I'm with her, man. It's it's not all behavioral change. It's not all getting a new job. It's I don't see life the same way as everyone else. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm not connecting with them. That's why I feel out of place. And that's why I feel like my best days are behind me because I did all the cool stuff. And now here I am in corporate world saying, is this it? You know, and the mission's not over, right? That's what I had to learn. No, the mission continues. What we signed up for, we can continue with when we get out. And um, it took me a long time to learn that. But man, yeah, we went through some turbulent times. Um, Mm -hmm. And I never saw him coming. And I think what's challenging is sometimes I'll talk to a veteran and be like, they'll be like, dude, today's my last day. I'm getting out. Right. It was like a friend of mine. And I'm like, Hey man, you know, don't be surprised if you find yourself getting more angry, if you find yourself being easily irritated by people. And if you feel like you're losing your your sense of identity and purpose, if that's the case, just know you can reach out to me and I got a book to help you. Right. Yeah. So, so lead me up to uh, writing the book. We've talked a lot about transitions, especially this season on the Scuttlebutt. I, I feel like that sort of became like a, a main theme that we've had as our overarching, you know, idea of what we've been touching on. Um, but we've heard a lot that the transition is very tough. And especially I feel like for you, in your case, where you were just so driven from a very young age to like, this is what I want. And that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it. Then you get there, you get out. Yeah, there's this full culture shock not just from military to civilian but just mm-hmm. re refinding who as you've said like who's adam in this new world 
And how do how do you refine your purpose, your goals, your passions? You know, find like I said earlier, it's easy to just like find a job you hate and float and be like whatever. But like now you're mm. in a job where it's like, what do I do and how do I activate my myself for this? Like, yeah, oh man, it, you don't even see the hit coming. Mm -hmm. You just start to see your family, you know, disintegrating, your relationships yeah. falling apart. You don't like who you are anymore. You look in the mirror and you're like who the heck are you, dude? And you get asked these questions like, what do you do? And you don't know which option do I choose? Do I choose my past? And then I'm living in my past and I say what I did because that made me a cool badass. Or do I say what I do now, which has nothing to do with the rest of my entire life. It's just at this moment, this is what I do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, like for me, uh, pro uh, project manager, right? I'm a project manager, but really I'm a Blackhawk pilot. Uh, but really I was a captain, but really, you know, like that was the majority of my life. Um, and you know, you find yourself having to decide which one am I going to say? And like, for me, I would, I would always say always like, uh, you know, man, I'm a project manager, but I used to be a black Hawk helicopter pilot. And then people are like, Oh my God, it's so cool. Right. And that made me feel really good because it was like, I didn't need to be cool. I just needed to be a little bit more accurate and I needed them to know they could trust me that like, I'm a good dude. Right. Like I, I, I realized that the military has a persona sometimes where people um, are like, man, wow, you're military. Like, that's awesome. And they, and they trust you a little bit quicker. Hmm. So for me, um, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I'm kind of like thinking as I'm talking to you, but it's like, I mean, anyone could be a project manager and not anyone could be uh, a pilot, right? A Blackhawk yeah. pilot. And that right. was what I really wanted. So I would introduce myself by my past, but my tone would change, right? Um, I would, I wouldn't say it proudly just so you know, I wasn't like, I used to be a Blackhawk pilot. I'd be like, oh, I used to be a Blackhawk pilot. I used to fly Blackhawks. And my voice would get lower and I would break yeah. eye contact with people. And I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why I couldn't keep eye contact with like a waiter or a waitress. You know, someone who's asking you uh, literally comes up to you for that moment to ask you about your meal and you can't even look at them. Uh, when someone asks you about your past in the military, you give them a real quick description because you don't want to explain all the things you never did. Okay. See, this is yeah. the thing, uh, you know, I'm fighting for that person who, and there's a lot of them, by the way, who, who are saying, man, I didn't do enough. Maybe I didn't deploy. I didn't get the rank I wanted. I didn't get the position I wanted, you never know, overall. Combat they're apologizing for the things that they never did or they were never asked to do. And I meet these people every day. I, I mean, consistently I'm meeting warriors who are, are unable to embrace their full story and say, this is what I do have. This is what I can bring to the table. But let me tell you who Adam is. Mm -hmm. See, like I fully, like, it sounds weird, but I'm saying this for any veteran out there. I love Adam. Like I didn't, you know, I only wanted Captain Jones. I only wanted these pieces, but now it's like, dude, I'm Adam and Adam's enough. You know, when I show up and speak yeah. at a base about weapons of mass deception, about these four weapons that are destroying your peace, purpose, and power, I'd, I'd say, hey, I'm Adam. And like, dude, Adam's actually pretty cool. So you're going to get to know Adam this time instead of Captain Jones. And like, I want people to embrace their first name because that will go with you forever. When I sign a book now, um, you know, this weekend we were speaking to 300 soldiers at Buckley Air Force Base. And I, I said, what's your first name? And they gave me their first name. I said, I don't know why, but I just want to write your first name on there, right? Yeah. When I sign the book, because right. to me, that's going to go with you forever. Mm -hmm. So these are like, I just went so deep with this, you know, like I, I, I found myself so 
lost and angry mm-hmm. that when I found the breakthrough, I was like, I have to share it. So what, this is what I say. What yeah. I received, I need to release. Okay. Um, and I received, I received a lot of good stuff. I got to release it to help others. So how did you find the, the weapons? This is yeah. getting into like the first part of your book, defining the weapons. Yeah, you said something really interesting. I'm not remembering exactly, but like we're we're right on target because you basically were talking about um, the life around you changing or something. And like for me, my pain wasn't enough to make me change. Mm-hmm. Um, my mindset, you know, these these pieces, I just accepted them. This sounds weird for someone who's driven, but if a driven person did this, then what about everyone else? Like if I chose to coast, if I chose to let myself get a gut and, um, you know, lose connection with my wife and, and just drift through life, if I chose that, then I can't imagine what other people are choosing because I'm not that guy. So I totally lost myself. And, um, I was looking, uh, one day I was, I was with my wife. She was across the, the table from me and she said, Adam, where are you? And I said, what do you mean? She's like, where are you? Like, you're not here. And I said, no, I'm right here. What are you talking about? I'm like sitting right next to you. I was like, our, our little like one-year-old was running around. And um, she said, you're not here. You're never here. I don't know where you are, but you're not here. And it's those type of conversations, those moments where my wife had the courage to call out that I was drifting. Like when an aircraft drifts, we call it out. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. You're telling me my aircraft is drifting out of place and I need to know because I don't want to crash. Well, she did the same thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, I saw these, what I call the eyes of exhaust. Just, she was so exhausted, so tired by me. Mm-hmm. And what I realized, Sean, was that the pain that I was ignoring, right? And this is how I say it in the book, what I was suppressing was spreading, Mm-hmm. The pain that I was suppressing, saying this is the way life is, oh well, right, was spreading to her. And that's when I got up and fought again, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the stuff, man. We call this shift focus at Kingdom Operatives. Shift focus because fear falls when we focus on others. Mm-hmm. Shift focus because when you see someone else who you are influencing, then you begin to see that these are weapons of mass deception. It's not just you getting hurt, it's those around you. A weapon of mass deception is focused on the multitudes of people around you. That's why that's why I found this kind of unique language. I know it's unique. I know I, you know, landed on it, came up with it, whatever, but I think it can help a lot of people because I wasn't willing to change for me because I'm a soldier and I'm willing to struggle and suffer, right? But when I saw other people were struggling and suffering because of what I brought into an atmosphere, into a home, I was like, this is not okay anymore. Yeah. Like I got to fight for her because she deserves peace. She deserves love. She deserves to be appreciated. Right. And um, I did that by focusing on me. Right. Like you you see this and then you go, okay, I got to change. Yeah. And that's not an easy thing to decide. Yeah. Go ahead that's not an easy thing to decide or realize. Yeah, I, I know. Um, you see it all the time though, in, in movies, you know, like sing, sing Two. you got kids. I don't know if you've seen sing Two yet. Not quite. Like, we're not quite that. We're still on Daniel Tiger. So, <laughs> Oh, there you go. Okay, cool. Well, Daniel Tiger's legit. Um, there's, uh, there's these scenes, you know, where you'll see someone who like, they're afraid to, to take action, yeah. but then they see someone else is gonna, you know, like 
in Sing Two, this one person's this koala is thrown off uh, a stage and he's gonna you know fall to his his doom, right? To, yeah, he's gonna die, and she jumps to save him. But she was afraid the whole time of jumping uh, yeah. for a performance. The point is we shift focus and then fear will fall. And now you got to take that next step. Yeah. So, yeah, I just realized this isn't about you, Adam. This is about them. And there's something going on in you that's hurting them. And that's where I started to see all these different cultural things going on that I call weapons of mass deception mm -hmm. that I didn't recognize were attacks on my home, not just my heart. So was that the genesis of, of the book, the idea sort of sprouted and yeah. then as you started to shift that focus, is that where the book sort of started to come out of that and you sort of, let's say, gave birth Ooh. to it? So basically, um, I, I just had some really amazing people in my life. Again, God put great people in my life who started to expose certain things and and talked to me about maybe different ways they they saw my tendencies. Like this one person was like, Adam, you're a really good guy. And this guy is a great mentor to me. He wrote the forward for my book. He said, mm -hmm. you're a good guy. And I remember that alone made me cry, like just being honest. Because I'm like, yeah. no, I'm not. And he said, um, what, what do you say next? I'm trying to think here. He basically said, but there's some there's some soul damage. There are some things in you that uh we need to we need to work on right he said i can tell you're uncomfortable you don't know how to sit how to stand you don't you know like i can see that you're like what do i say next so that i sound a certain way it was crazy it's like he saw through the whole charade yeah. he saw through the whole mask mm -hmm. he could tell that i was not comfortable with just being me now i am you know now i can just flow it's fun you know uh but i didn't i didn't get that you know military told me how to sit how to stand where to put my hands where to walk if I walk with a higher ranking officer, mm -hmm. you know, all those type of things. So, oh, certainly, the, yeah. You you get out of that 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 atmosphere, correct? And suddenly, yeah, and suddenly it's like, who, who, what, what? You know, why am I? Why is this person telling me what to do? Like, I don't want to do that. Like, you know, and then, and then not only that, like, if you're so focused in the excitement, there's the adrenaline of flying a, a Black Hawk. You know, mm -hmm. it's very different than holding a baby it's just like you you feel like the, what am i doing like mm. i need to do something you mm -hmm. know like how like how do you reconcile that how do you reshape that to be like this is just as important as being up there you know oh man you're hitting on a perfect yep so the book i as you surprises people i didn't write the book while i was going through that mm -hmm. i wrote it after i was totally victorious and mm -hmm. i felt uh Again, like I'm, I'm so open about this stuff because I just want people to be open about where they're at, their faith, the whole thing, right? I really felt an impression from God saying, you got to write this book and and this is what it's going to be about. It's going to be about culture. It's going to be about the things you just went through. And I was like, uh, no, I'm not qualified to do that. Um, I was a captain in the Army National Guard. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, I just had this sense of like, you don't need to be qualified. Just write the message and let it let it go, right? Like get yeah. it out. So I found a lot of people who are like, Adam, I want this to reach the generals. I want this to reach, you know, the, the, like I just spoke at a battalion and they said, we got to get this to brigade. Mm -hmm. That's great feedback, right? Yeah. Huge. So it didn't need to be me and my rank. The message alone could be so convicting that it speaks to the spirit of a warrior and they go, this is real. Yeah. Right. So the book was written reluctantly. Uh, I hated writing weapons of mass deception. Uh, I'm not, I was never an author before that. Mm 
I didn't do this so I could be an author. I did this because I literally felt a responsibility that this needed to get out there in the best ways possible, which is why, you know, we have things like a book. We have a workbook to accommodate that book. If someone chooses, we have a full course uh, around this and we have the audiobook. Mm -hmm. I, I was like, it's got to be the full product suite. So people have the option that works best for them. Um, so well, I Adam, stopped you, writing you, it multiple times. Adam, mm -hmm. you have not struck me as a person that does things half-assed. So <laughs> it wasn't just going to be like a chapter. It wasn't going to be like, Hey, I wrote this thing in the journal. It was like, I'm going to create an entire suite of options for you. You are welcome. Yeah. Um, and I love that. I love that because this isn't just, just for veterans. Like this is, no. this impacted me. I'm a civilian, you know, the workbook, I'd love to get it because detailing that going through that it, it's, it works for everyone. That's what I want my audience to take away from this. We're not just talking about a, a book that sort of can help you find purpose or help you find yourself. It, there's a workbook involved. There's there's ways that you can engage with this uh, if you choose to that can really help you uh, find yourself, as you said, like find Adam, find that best part of you that says like Ooh. I can I could sit in the room and not not think about what I have to speak next. I can just be here. I can be me. Wow, you know how hard that is. Oh my gosh. I remember I would ask people questions like, how do you, how do you be more present? What I didn't realize was uh, you had to work for that and mm -hmm. you had to be so properly aligned that now you could be present and availability does not equal presence. A lot of us in the military believe, you know, if, I just need to be there more. Well, that's just being available, right? How do we be present? How do we be engaged in that moment? Yeah. And I, I, I don't know how it's possible other than the things that I've documented, um, and, uh, you know, my, my own transformation, but I can actually say like, I am here, I'm here with you right now. I'm not thinking of anything else. Mm -hmm. My God, you know how weird that is to me. I'm, I, that was not me. I can, I, I was always two places at once. My mind was always on the next thing, you know, uh, the greater impact that could be made. Um, thinking what do I say next to get this conversation to go this way? Uh, mm -hmm. No, no more, you know, it's so, so much freedom. And that's the thing I want other people to experience. So, uh, a weapon of mass deception knows you very well if you're ambitious and you're driven. If you're someone who's selfless and you want to give yourself to the service of others, and that's just the way you are, and you think everyone else like you don't you don't get why they're not that way. Man, I'm telling you, a weapon of mass deception knows you, um, and it's not really aiming at you. It's using you to hurt others. Uh, it's we have a responsibility to detect and defeat these weapons. And that's why in the book, uh, as you saw, uh, Sean, is I have a four phase operation that I take people through. Yeah. Dude, I got people who hate reading, who read this book in a day. You know, we had a chief warrant officer four who used this book in his retirement speech. Uh, he talked about all four weapons and then he was done. And they were like, hey, where'd that come from? And one person there knew me and he's like, was that Adam's book you just talked about? He said, it took me 40 years of military service to learn these things. Mm -hmm. uh, I want people to know this sooner. This is not a repeat of anything you've ever heard before. It, it is very unique because um, you said it, you said this one piece about like family and like holding a baby and, oh my God, I felt so out of place doing those things. Right. And I totally thought I should just be in my uniform, going to do army things, making an impact in the world. Well, guess what? That's the second weapon of mass deception called the altar of impact. And the altar of impact wants you to sacrifice the people closest to you, your family, your friends, those who are right there with you all the time, it wants you to sacrifice them on the altar of impacting other people you'll never meet. Mm 
Mm. And by doing so, it's going to cause you to fall apart in the future because you're not going to have the foundation you need. It's all going to start falling apart because you focus so much on the impact outward instead of those who are right there with you. You know, my, my kids will never get another father. Right. I get that. Like there's father figures and stuff, but dude, there's only one Adam Jones. Okay. Yeah. And this is it. So yeah. that's my greatest place of impact. They're, they're the, they're the ones who are going to be able to um, expand influence. And they're going to either say, man, my dad was present. He was loving. He was powerful. He, he spoke into us. He positioned us and they can go make whatever choice they want with their life. I get that. Mm -hmm. But like, I can at least say, man, I was there, you yeah. know? So we travel as a family. Uh, but also my wife said one time, she said, Adam, you come alive when you speak. And I said, actually, no, I'm always alive. And she said, she said something about purpose. She said, speaking is totally your purpose. In the past, I would have said, you're right. And I said, you know what? That's not true. It's one of my purposes, but you're also my purpose. Mm -hmm. I defeated the altar of impact and I want other people to do the same thing. I defeated that mindset. I mapped out what we call a kill chain and I saw what's going on here. So in the book, man, we give really practical counterattacks against this stuff. Mm -hmm. Now you're aware, what do you do next, right? So yep. um, yeah, I just, for anyone listening, man, if the altar of impact's been affecting you and you're saying, I got to go make an impact, I got to go here, I got to go do that. Like, let's start with just the awareness that that is not correct because yes, you can go impact others, but who needs you in your home, yeah. right? Yeah. Ministers fall into the same trap. I found that a lot and- um, Absolutely. Yeah, we can do things about it. Totally. Um, okay, so uh, as we're coming up to time here, I, I want to give our audience, like, what's what's the elevator pitch? Why should they pick up Weapons of Mass Deception and the workbook? Uh, it, you know, what is the best way for them to engage with, with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, our service in the military should be a training ground for what's coming up next so that our best days are our next days. Like that should be the truth. It should yeah. be, okay, great. I have this experience. I have these things I can take with me and I can build on top of, but they are they are um, not limits. Mm -hmm. Too many of us are allowing prior labels and experiences to limit us and those around us. And in this book, we're gonna expose the four weapons, clear as can be. We're gonna take you through four phases. The first phase is define the weapon. What is a weapon of mass deception? There's a lot more you need to know about it. You need to learn about the origins of the weapon. There are four origins. Uh, it's not just trauma, by the way. A lot of people always think, oh, I can't imagine what you saw over there. I don't, over where? In the United States? You know, like, dude, I was in a culture. See, the, the big thing about this book is normalizing the fact that cultures can form us, mm -hmm. that the military alone, the structure of the service, when we step out of the structure, we are exposed to new attacks, things that maybe were going on inside of us that we weren't aware of. Mm -hmm. So we got to define the weapons. Um, like I said, we'll talk about origin. We'll talk about uh, the, the actual definition. We'll talk about what's called military deception, MILDEC, um, all these different pieces. So you're fully aware of it. Then after that, we're going to go into, and, and by the way, I mean, we got military units that are buying 50 books, 50 workbooks at a time and distributing them to their, their organization. So if it's good enough for current service, it's got to be good enough for veterans, right? Yeah. Um, second phase, then we're going to actually um, detect the deception. You're going to study the stories of different people. This book is not about me. It's about you. And we're going to use different stories to get you there. So uh, almost like a fable style where you're going to see the story unravel and you're going to see what weapon was affecting this person. And then now that we know that weapon, what are the key indicators for our own life to see if that weapon is present? Mm -hmm. All right. 
Um, after that, then we move into dismantling the weapon. When we dismantle the weapon, we're going to use a lot of aviation references. We're going to talk about uh, your instrument panel and trusting your instruments compared to how you feel. What does it mean if you're actually level right now? You might be like, dude, I'm fine. Yeah, but where's your piece at? Mm -hmm. How about your family? Like people usually do so much better if they can just be real with this. Does your family feel peace right now? I mean, does your wife yeah. seem powerful right now? Does your husband seem powerful right now? Mm-hmm. Okay. If not, then maybe, maybe there's something we can do here to fix that. Right. Yeah. So we talk about peace, people, purpose, power. These are our different gauges that we want to watch for in our life. Mm-hmm. Then we map out an entire kill chain multiple times. So you can see uh, there's five steps to a kill chain, but we can see what was the beginning stage that caused us to feel this, you know, maybe it was early childhood, maybe at five years old, you had a father who just absolutely never spoke into you, wasn't present at all. And that started to create a little bit of a wound that now has been exposed more. There's, there's so much to our life. It's a very complex thing. Right. right. And then lastly, we deploy a counterattack, and we have specific tactics for, that you can use and deploy if these weapons have been affecting you. Uh, this is a book that you read with your spouse. It's a book mm. that you read with your family, right? Like people mm-hmm. are are saying, I'm buying like just this weekend, people bought two copies, one for them, one for their spouse. Yeah. And they were like, we're going through this together because we need to communicate better. We need to connect more. Mm-hmm. And I'm not willing to leave this. So I'll leave you guys with this. If freedom is is worth fighting for, people fight for freedom. And if freedom is worth dying for, People will die for your freedom. Mm-hmm. Then freedom must be worth living for. So if you're not experiencing that freedom that other people have fought for, then man, we got to go do the work. Yeah. And there really is a mission and we got to continue it. We got to continue mission. So you can buy it uh, Amazon um, or if you want personal copy, adamfjonesbook.com. I'll sign it for you there, adamfjonesbook.com. Um, but audiobooks on Kindle, um, or sorry, we, we got book on Kindle. We got the audiobook on Audible. Mm-hmm. Um, I just recommend if you get the audiobook, make sure you get a physical copy as well, because there's a lot of figures and graphics and things like that that you'll want to reference. Do you, who did the? Uh, I always like to ask this of the authors. Who did you get to do the uh, the reading? You did, Adam. Adam there you Jones. Go. Nice. Yeah, it was very hard. I was hoping. I wasn't going to add, but I was hoping because you got a good you got a good voice for that. So. That's Thank great. You. And, and you can speak to it. So you understand it. That's that's what I think a lot of authors maybe don't get is like, I want to find somebody who has a better voice than I do. Um, but what they don't realize, especially in this case of, of this particular style of book, is that you can speak to this so eloquently and and have people really understand what you're talking about. Uh, because like you said, there's there's a, a little bit of a of a of a new to term new terms to learn with this. Um, but you know, as you work someone through it it's all going to be very crystal clear. Yeah. And you'll hear me cry in there as well, unexpectedly, mm-hmm. uh, as I talk about, you know, different things my wife has said and, uh, you know, interactions with my daughter, both uh, during the bad stages and the great stages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm connected to this message because I know these weapons yep. and I want you to know them as well. Um, it's not that I, I have all the answers. It's that we want to start a conversation with you so that you're more aware of what's going on around you and in you. Mm-hmm. So um, when th- during those times, Sean, when I was saying I was struggling to keep writing, I was like, yeah, I felt this inspiration again of, 
yeah, these weapons are real and they're really hurting you. So you need to keep sharing them. Because the reason I would stop is I'd be like, dude, the pressure of performance is still affecting me. The first weapon of mass deception, I feel like I'm going to explode. I feel on edge. I feel angry again. I thought I, I thought I defeated this. No, no, no. It's a continual fight. And because you know it so well, you can tell its story. Well, I will say this, Adam, is from what you said earlier, you weren't just a cool badass when you were flying Black Ops. You're pretty cool badass now. Um, thank you for providing this uh, amazing resource uh, for not only veterans, for everyone. Um, uh, certainly, uh, I will be taking this with me uh, and and talking about it. So I'm hoping to get more people to you and for our audience. Uh, there are all the links down below in the description, whether you got this on audio or you're watching on YouTube. Uh, all you have to do is click that link. Uh, and you can get the book and the workbook. Um, and also, I want to, before we finish, uh, Kingdom Operatives, uh, what is that? Where can people find it? Uh, and how do they uh, get your services? Yeah, I'll give you you guys a couple options. So the website, uh, kingdomoperatives.com, that, that'll get you all squared away there. Um, send an email to myself if you're listening to this. Um, actually, I'll, I'll give you a, a better contact. Go to admin at adamfjones.com. That'll get you set up with my team. If you want to talk about this, bringing this into your organization, because that's what's happening right now. You know, we got military units that are, that we're in constant communication with, and we're not only focused on military. It's just, that's one of our greatest places to yep. impact people with this message. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're focused on people with a warrior mentality, people who are mission minded. So if you send an email to admin at adamfjones.com or go to the site, kingdomoperatives.com, either way, you'll be able to either schedule a call or send an email and just say, hey, you know, we, we want to talk about this. We want to bring this into our organization. And we usually run either a keynote or a workshop. You know, we're preparing something right now for another base uh, in Colorado. That's going to be a four hour workshop where we're not only going to talk about this, but we're going to do the work as a team to create the culture we want to see. So that should get everyone set up. You know, my Instagram and all that kind of stuff is lead with Adam. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you know, what we're all about is we want to bring restoration to the heart of the warrior. You know, there really are bad people out there who hate, who hate what we stand for, mm -hmm. you know, who hate people who stand for freedom, who want right. other people to experience peace, who want other people to experience, you know, uh, love, right? Like they, people hate that. And we want to make sure that warriors are the absolute strongest versions of themselves and that these teams are so locked you know, so, so solid, right? So locked in with what yeah. they represent that they know everyone is showing up powerfully because we didn't allow these things to to destroy us from the inside out. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know, you know, suicides in the military, what that looks like, right? right. It's absolutely terrible. Uh, in 14 years from Iraq to Afghanistan uh, war, you had, uh, I think it was just a little under 7,000 people killed in action, but you had 73,000 who committed suicide right who conducted suicide so is it possible that bombs and bullets are not the greatest weapon of the enemy i think so uh to our audience please like share subscribe ring the bell on youtube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes if you have any questions uh for adam or myself you can reach out to me sean s-h-a-u-n at veteransbreakfastclub.org uh adam i want to thank you so much for your time for your truth for your story uh today uh for appearing on the podcast uh, i'm hoping this drives more people to you and your message um and uh go stillers let's go man <laughs> all right thanks sean thanks for having me 
Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, they have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured tobacco-free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, it was one, two wonderful conversations. So I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health for your support.